Today on The Black Goat, we are going to talk about our personal journeys with replicability and a letter about what to do if your advisor wants you to PHAC. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava, and with me, as always, are my co-hosts, Alexa Tullett. Hi, Alexa. Hi, Sanjay. And Samin Vizier. Hi, Samin. Hi, Sanjay. So it's uh, we're recording this on June 21st, the solstice, and uh, so it's the longest day of the year, which like totally sneaks up on you when you're on the quarter system. Um, I don't know. Uh, Alexa, are you on semesters or quarters? Semesters. So you've been you've been done for a long time, curse you. She's almost Samina. done with summer session. That's insane. Jeez Louise, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we we had like uh, so we our grades were just due literally yesterday. Actually, I can't um, complain I'm... because I didn't teach spring quarter. But yeah. <laughs> do you ever teach? Yes, I teach four hundred students a year. Research methods. Uh, yeah, and and then we we had like horrible weather this winter. So my son is still in school, like we were, you know, getting him ready for school today. And he made a comment about how today's the first day of summer officially. And I was like, fucking hey. I mean, I didn't say fucking hey to my seven-year-old son, but I was like, fucking hey. Like, I think many of our listeners will be shocked with. that you didn't say fucking hey to your seven-year-old son. Well, he's, he's, learning, he's learning to curse. Like, he's, he's learned what most of the major curse words are. And uh, um, I feel like such a hypocrite telling him not to do it, but uh, I'm I'm gonna go that route anyway. <laughs> I figure like it's it's this weird thing where like I, I realize the appeal of like moral black and whiteness when you know when I have a kid like because trying to like just saying don't do this thing is very easy. It's very clear to a small child like. They, now, it might bat, blow up in your face later on, but, like, they get it, right? Where instead I'm trying to be like, so there are these words, and it's not that you can't ever use them, but they upset some people, even though your mother and I, you've heard us accidentally let them slip, and they're on your TV show, or, you know, whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's just, like, trying to explain them. Everyone thinks they're hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm terrible so, at not yeah. swearing around kids. I'm so bad at it. I'm so bad at not swearing in front of them, and I'm also so bad about encouraging it. Like, I think it's hilarious <laughs> when kids swear. <laughs> oh, boy. So I, I'm pretty good at not swearing in front of my own kid, but I, I slip in front of uh, other people's kids all the time. It's it's weird. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah, whatever, like, part of my brain knows to shut it off, only knows to shut it off when it's my own child around. <laughs> There's an evolutionary psych explanation for that. So. Yeah, right. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, Wait, so, Sandra, uh, you mentioned that it's the solstice, but you didn't mention that it's my dad's birthday, which is much your, more important. Your dad was born on the solstice? Yes. Well, happy birthday, Mr. Alexa, or whatever. <laughs> that is awesome. Is he his mi- name. That's how he goes. Is, is, he goes by that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is, is, well, he, is he Mr. Tollett? Doctor, Dr. Alexa. Doctor. Oh, Dr. Alexa. <laughs> He's not All actually right. a doctor, but he just likes that better. Nice, nice. Well, you know, we're we're sort of doctors, I guess. Um, fake doctors. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the best so, Alexa, you're teaching this summer, right? Yes. Yeah. Cool. So I'm teaching this summer, and I actually have a story about this class that I've been teaching because so my class is like it's a it's a poser class. It's called uh, psychological approaches to philosophical problems. Um, despite the fact that I have no expertise in philosophy and probably haven't read more philosophy than the average person. Um, but basically like the classes, you know, people read psychology articles about things that I think are philosophical questions. So anyways, like, as you can imagine, um, you know, like various controversial topics come up. And so, um, we talk, we spend like a couple of classes talking about religion and I always have sort of like an internal debate about how much I want to reveal about my own views to my students. So, you know, we also end up talking about politics and I'm like, well, should I tell them my own political views? And they eventually sort of become obvious, but I wonder if like, you know, I should explicitly state them. And then I have, I guess maybe like I'm less careful about this, but I also have similar concerns about talking about my religious views. But anyways, um, so I told my students that uh, I'm an atheist the other day. And um, so I, I work at the University of Alabama. And so 
um, Re relevant uh, information, <laughs> re <laughs> extremely relevant information because, um, so I didn't realize this, but so I told him that I was an atheist and I feel like there was sort of like a hush on the room <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I guess I was expecting, um, for maybe there not to be that many other atheists in the room. Um, but I wasn't expecting them to not know any atheists. And so like I mentioned this one class and as I say, it was, it became awkward for a minute maybe. Um, and then, and then one of them stopped me and she was like, so I only know one person who's an atheist and it's my aunt and she like hates religious people and posts all the time on Facebook about like how she hates religious people. And she's like, so I'm just wondering like, you, you don't seem like that. <laughs> um, and so then like we talked about it again, the following class and several other people um, mentioned that I was the only atheist they'd ever met. Um, so now I'm representing all of atheists to this class of Alabama undergrads. That's fascinating. I mean, it's interesting yeah. because I would have said like, I would not tell my undergrads that I'm an atheist, but I would tell our podcast listeners apparently. Um, <laughs> but I think everyone. that's like actually a really good reason is like, especially in your case where like they might not have ever had a chance to talk to someone who's an atheist. I mean, I just still don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's a tough question. I feel like, yeah. Sanjay, you and I had like a long discussion in, about atheism in Bologna once. Do you remember this? Um, kind of. Okay. <laughs> I remember having a lot of long discussions in Bologna. Yeah. Anyway, we talked about atheism versus agnosticism. And like, yeah. I was talking about yeah, how I like, do remember that. many yeah. people, when I say that I'm an atheist, like people who I never would have thought would have this reaction, like other academics who I assume know tons of atheists, but maybe I'm wrong are like, oh, well, then why do you, why would you ever behave morally? And I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> you're, you spend your life thinking about, like, moral behavior and things like that. But, yeah, so I was really naive about how rare atheism is, although I also want to put a plug in for Will Gervais's paper, which, full disclosure, is an I, SPPS. I had a feeling that was coming. Yeah, I know. It's such a good paper. You guys should read it anyway. How many <laughs> atheists are there? It's a really good paper. So there might be people who, like, don't believe in God, but don't call themselves atheists. But yeah, I think like it's really novel for a lot of people to hear someone call themselves an atheist. Yeah. yeah so that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I wonder, so Oregon has one of the highest in, in just sort of absolute terms, there's still a small minority, but one of the highest percentages of atheists, I would, I, I've never talked about like my personal religious beliefs in the classroom. I want, I, I wonder if I, sort of had a class and brought that up like how many students w of mine would say they know an atheist I would I would guess a lot would but I, I might be projecting because like academic psychologists have a pretty high percentage of atheists but not as high as I think the atheists assume <laughs> <laughs> wait like, are you saying I, the false consensus effect is real yeah <laughs> I also like I feel like I have to clarify even with like people with PhDs people who are professors like that just because I call myself an atheist doesn't mean that I hate religious people like, it's kind of shocking to me that how consistent it is that that comes up or that I can tell that's what they're wondering. Yeah, that's that's sort of my... So it's, it's hard to say because people didn't elaborate on their reaction to me telling them that I was an atheist. Um, but that's my guess about why they sort of, like, hesitated for a minute. Like, I think that... Um, one thing that they wondered was, like, okay, wait, if she's, if she's saying she's an atheist, does that mean that she, like does that mean that she doesn't like religious people or doesn't respect religion or something like that? And I think that that's sort of one thing that they were trying to like suss out after that and was like, yeah. okay, wait, that's not what you mean. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, there, there's an interesting, uh, I think that they've done a few uh, papers along this, along these lines, but there is a paper, uh, I actually posted about this on Twitter the other day in a different context, um, talking about open science, but a paper by Julia Minson and Benoit Monin uh, about do-gooder derogation, where um, it's, a, it's about how people re react to what they call moral minorities, and they look at vegetarians. And basically, they've got, you know, these studies that, that kind of suggest that, like, people anticipate being judged by vegetarians, like if you're not a vegetarian, and so they sort of do this, like, anticipatory derogation of them. Um, and, mm -hmm. and this came up in an online discussion about sort of how people respond to open science advocacy. And, and I think atheism might have some of that as well. It's like, 
because I think it's there's you, know, you can there's like atheism as a sort of set of personal beliefs, but then there's also this like identity, and there's the whole movement, the new atheists who are, you know some of whom are very uh, um, I think uh, outspoken and and sometimes disrespectful, or or at least sort of yeah, I, I think yeah. it's fair to say some of them are sometimes disrespectful, not just all like of them. in any group, but maybe maybe that's yeah. more true of new yeah. atheists, whatever that label means. Well, I think uh, yeah, I, I don't know the actual like people who identify, but among the leadership, this you know yeah the uh, most anyway, visible yeah. Right. And so, so, I mean, I had this experience, I was a vegetarian in college and I had an experience of it just like coming up in conversation with somebody that was a vegetarian. And this guy completely went off on me about like, you know, things that like, basically the, the premise of all of which was that I was judging him. And I was like, dude, like, I don't care what you eat. Mm -hmm. Like I'm I'm a vegetarian because my dad's had two heart attacks and I just thought it would be good for my health. (laughs) Like, you know, and it turned out he had had like a, a run-in with somebody else who was a vegetarian who was very sort of uh, who who was very judgmental and strident about it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think I think there is for some people they may have experiences, but even I think even if they don't, and this is kind of what the the Minson and Monan paper suggests is that like when you're a sort of minority based around something morally relevant, people are just kind of like primed to do this yeah. you know to have this reaction i mean i like i feel judged drawn vegetarians and so i avoid eating meat but i think that's a good thing like i think that's <laughs> the point right like i won't order the blt around the, my friends who are vegetarians and i think that's like wow that's effective like they're that's they're right like i well because i feel like i should be a vegetarian so maybe i'm just judging myself and like their presence reminds me of my own moral standards yeah but yeah, I feel like I've seen you eat a BLT before. Yeah, you've definitely seen me. <laughs> but today, today so, I did not order the BLT. I thought about it and I didn't order it. So Alexa, myself. did you try to convert your students? Was that part of the deal? <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> um, I've been trying to tell them that if they become atheists, they can drink as much as they want and they can <laughs> sleep with people before they get married. And like, it's like way more fun. But um, it's, it's I feel like working. we have to say that that's not true. Otherwise, you're going to get like fired from your job. <laughs> yeah, also, you've been trying true. to convince all of them to move to Canada. And... <laughs> <laughs> but I did. So I did say like my first reaction to them sort of like wondering about whether I don't like religious people was saying that like, um, I think that the way that I feel about people who have different religious beliefs than mine is probably similar to to the way that they feel about people who are parts of different, like um, hold different religious beliefs than they do. I was like, it's just that like, I don't fall into any of those categories. Mm -hmm. Um, So I hopefully like, I think they could probably relate to that because they all, at least the most vocal ones in the class, like really prize being like very tolerant of different beliefs. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. I think in a seminar, it's really hard to avoid. Like, I almost feel like it's weird not to tell your students your own opinion about a topic. That's like a major topic of discussion, but in a, in a larger class, I always avoid telling them where I stand on like political or religious issues. And even, yeah, even in seminars, I, I avoid it if it's at all possible. But then when you're having like several days of discussion on it, I can understand how it can be hard to avoid. Yeah, and the the one thing too that sort of makes me think maybe it is a good idea to disclose these things explicitly is that like I know it influences the kinds of things that I have them read and the things that I say and like the, you know, ideas that I'm more enthusiastic about and all of that stuff. And so like I think there's some degree of sort of Um, transparency in saying like, you know, um, being like explicit about my beliefs about certain things rather than just sort of like, yeah, advocating them, but not acknowledging that I'm doing it or something. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I I was teaching intro in the fall, you know, during election season, 500 students. And I, I tried really hard. I mean, I think that's a good distinction you made to mean that I think is implicit in what you're saying, Alexa, too, that like when, you know, when it's a big lecture, it's kind of like a one way street. Yeah, and yeah, I exactly. feel I feel like that doesn't if, if I disclose something that that doesn't give students the opportunity to like engage with me over it. Um, and so I'm m- more guarded. And also it's like it's an introductory class and I want everybody to I really do want everybody to feel welcome. Um, and so, you know, I tried pretty hard. I, I may have, you know, it's, it's hard. Like yeah. I, I, you know, it's hard, but I tried really hard, but yeah, in, I mean, in, in smaller seminars, I mean, I certainly, 
you know, with, with, uh, you know, I don't know that it's ever been super relevant religious views and in, in stuff that I've taught, but just things where I have personal opinions that I know things vary, whether it's personal opinions in a professional setting or just personal like opinions the about the world. the hexaco or. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, stuff like that. I will tell students, look, this is like, this is what I think and where I'm coming from, but other people, you know, other people that I respect disagree mm-hmm. or, or, you know, that there, there's room for a variety of views. Um, and you know, it's like in a, in a seminar setting, it's like on, on things that are sort of germane to the substance of the class, you actually want people to like feel free to disagree with you. But even when it's like your personal biases about, or, you know, just your point of view about the world, I think it's easier to share. I mean, I do think that, you know, there's things about like identities that we have that sort of intersect with the rest of the world that there can, it can be very powerful to bring that to students. Like your, your students, Alexa, it sounds like a bunch of them now have had their first experience of knowing that they know an atheist. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's that that can be a really powerful part of education. And I'm sure it's something that, you know, people with, you know, there, there are a lot of sort of stigmatized invisible identities, sexual orientation and other kinds of things that like, it's got to be, I'm sure people, there's probably a lot of different ways to handle that in better or worse, but it, it has the potential to go very well. I'm sure it also has the potential to be quite dangerous, mm-hmm. you know, in the wrong setting too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah right. Cool. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, um, yeah, that's, that's, neat. that's, this is kind of, I mean, our plan today is to be kind of personal. Uh, uh, I feel like whenever we've been personal, people like it on the podcast. So uh, <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. Um, should we talk about our letter? Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the letter. All right. Um, all right. So our letter today uh, starts, Dear the Black Goat, I have heard a number of stories where graduate students have felt pressured by their advisor to t- partake in some questionable academic actions i.e. e.g. conducting analyses during data collection, changing data analysis plans post hoc, etc. As graduate students, what can we do to A, protect ourselves from the potential blowback of these actions, and B, politely decline to do these things without seriously pissing off our advisor? Sincerely anonymous. So I feel like this letter has been sort of like a long time coming. Like I think this is um, an obvious question that, you know, is something that you know, it makes sense for us to attempt to answer. Um, but also I think it's a tricky question to answer um, because I don't think that there's a clear way to respond to this um, this kind of situation that avoids conflict. So I think, I, I think it's a really tough situation to be in. I can start with the wrong answer so that you guys can correct me. <laughs> okay, I, I get this good. question quite a bit. And so this specific letter sounds like it's a specific instance of the advisor pressuring their student to do something. If it's a more general, like my advisor doesn't share my values and like wants Mm -hmm. to repeatedly do these kinds of things. My advice when I get that question is to switch advisors. And I think that's Mm -hmm. like not very popular advice. I don't think a lot of people would give that advice, but I think we also, I don't know. I feel like we don't take grad students their plight and their positions as seriously as we should. I think, and it's not specific to this issue, but whenever your advisor puts pressure on you to do something that goes against your principles, that's something to take really, really seriously if it's not a one-time thing. So if you know it's going to keep happening, right? If your advisor was pressuring you to drink and you were not, you were against drinking or you didn't drink or whatever, like we would, we would take that pretty seriously or hope we should probably we wouldn't, but we should. Um, So, my reaction is usually to say like, if this is something that's happening repeatedly and it really goes against your principles, not just like you disagree about the statistical best practice in this particular case, but like this is something fundamental to you and deeper. I think it's worth seriously considering if you can switch advisors, which I know is not easy to do. It's not, there's not necessarily someone else in the department who would be a good fit. Is that because I mean, I think that, go ahead, Alexa. Is that because you think that, you're not going to change your advisor's mind or because you think that it shouldn't be the burden of the graduate student to change their advisor's mind. So I think, so I'm talking about cases where like, it's a pretty deep divide where like the advisor is pretty committed to one position. The grad student is pretty committed to a different position. Um, And that would go the other way too, right? If a grad student wanted to be hack and they had an advisor who would not let them, (laughs) 
you know, maybe that's a, I would give the same advice. I don't know. Um, but yeah, <laughs> don't, don't switch happened. advisors. <laughs> just drop out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I've been in situations where I've been like a senior author on a paper with other people's students and I've been the pain in the ass and I've actually yeah. explicitly said like, Hey, you can just take me off this paper. I know that I'm like the outlier here, but I don't feel comfortable with this. And so in that case, I would advise a guy student. Yeah. Like just drop me. If you don't want to do this, you don't share my values. Just drop me. That's fine. Like I'm not necessarily right. You can have different values. Um, but it's harder when it's your advisor. So in those cases, it wasn't my own students. But yeah, I think I think it's worth trying to change the culture in your own lab if you think it's a relatively superficial difference, like if new information could help change minds or if it's just a single instance or that kind of thing. But if it's pervasive and deep, I don't think it's worth trying to change a senior person. Yeah, I so I mean I don't I don't disagree with what you're saying, Samin, but I'll, I want to kind of put brackets around it, which is that I think I think what you're saying presumes a pretty high mm-hmm. level of clarity right. on a couple of things. One, the student has clarity about their principles. Yeah. Yeah. Two, they have clarity about what those actually translate into in practice, mm-hmm. um, and and it's possible to have the first but not the second. Yeah. And three, it's uh, there's a lot of clarity about like where the advisor stands. the advisor yeah. where the advisor stands, and and in those instances, then yeah, I think uh, um, it's like if something clearly goes against your principles, then then you know it, it is important to validate students making taking a stand. I I think my you know. Like, I mean, we're going to talk later on about sort of our personal histories with, you know, replicability. And, and I mean, it's like people weren't doing this stuff for a long time because they knew it was wrong and they were just like, fuck it, I'm going to, you know, uh, do shitty science. Uh, At least not a lot of people weren't. Um, You know, these issues aren't in practice always so black and white. Um, Yeah. and, And, you know... Yeah, I think I think people's values were in place for a long time. For the most part, a lot of people really wanted to do good, rigorous science, and uh, so anyway. So I think there's there's like a version of this which is like you know, and 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 it's also like it's important to respect graduate students uh, and and give serious weight to their principles. I think it's also you know they're in the process of sort of figuring out like at a really distal level everyone would would really endorse yes i want to do good science but sort of figuring out what that looks like in practice and what that means on the ground is tough and i think the you know i mean this the the letter writer obviously has some sense of these issues because they're writing and because of the way they wrote the letter mm-hmm. and i think it it's an interesting time because more and more students have access to points of view outside of their own lab and their own department because of social media, right? So, you know, once upon a time, like, your advisor was kind of the only authority that you had access to as a human being, not as, like, written records or whatever. Now they can listen to podcasts and blogs and all these corrupt corrupt the youth. (laughs) Which is actually sort of... Sorry. um, That was one of the things I was going to say, was to give sort of, like, a more um, sort of concrete or practical answers that's not like, you know, ditch your advisor and find a new one. I think like one concrete way to handle these kinds of situations is to sort of throw other people under the bus. So yeah, like say like, well, I heard Samin say on this podcast that like you shouldn't do this, or I read this blog that said that you're not supposed to do that, or I read this paper that said that this is bad. And just like, I think if you're dealing with a reasonable advisor, I think it's fair to say like, okay, well, I read this thing that conflicts with what we're doing in this case, can you tell me why what we're doing is okay? Yeah, that's a really um, good point. And for all the people out there who are listening who are in a position to be thrown under the bus, like those of us with tenure or things like that, like this is why it's so important to raise these issues as a reviewer or you know, on an outside committee, whatever. Like You can be the bad guy, right? And then you're right. saving the grad student from having to be the bad guy. If you can say, like as reviewer B, you can be like, hey you know, can you report the analysis without the covariate too? Like my fantasy is that there's a grad student co-author out there who's like, oh, yes. thank God reviewer B said that <laughs> because I've been, I've been scared to tell my advisor that we should do this. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think the, you know, there are a lot of advisors who are kind of, I mean, I, I see this happen a lot where, you know, the graduate students often 
have the have an opportunity to engage with an advisor, especially kind of earlier in the process, right? So so when when you're like data collection's done, you're writing it up, they're really eager to like get that pub done or whatever. It's harder. But if it's like earlier in the process, you say like, hey, you know, everyone's talking about this pre-registration thing. Uh, you know, I just want to try it for this next project. Are you okay with that? And and you know, like I don't think there's any harm, blah, blah, blah. And and you know, it. this is obviously hugely sort of advisor and student and relationship dependent, but I think sometimes, you know, more senior people who get their backs up about, you know, get defensive when they feel like they're being attacked because they have a giant ego. They don't think they can be attacked by their own graduate students. And so it's like this low status person and they don't feel defensive about yeah. it. Um, that's very, very dependent on the circumstances. Um, that's why it's so hard to give advice because it's I wouldn't presume to tell the student what to do without knowing a zillion things about their situation but I think sort of mm-hmm. like strategies or ideas for thinking about it that's that's one way to think about it is like early in the process say like hey could we try this thing out yeah. and see you know yeah I mean in some ways if grad students want this and it's not their job but they have access to people that almost nobody else has access to, right? Like they can talk to the people, if their advisors are, are against these changes, they can actually ask like, okay, I'd love to hear your reasons and blah, blah. Like I would love to be able to ask a bunch of people who are against these changes, their reasons. So grad students who work in those labs are in a unique position, but it's not their duty to do that. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is uh, to say is like, when it's in that middle ground, when it's not like stuff that you think is just so egregious that you would feel violated your principles or, or something, you know, but when it, when it's sort of, when it really feels like, yeah, I'm just kind of being pushed into uncomfortable territory. I think it's up to a point and you have to be careful about this because it's very easy to talk yourself into doing things. Right. But I think up to a point, it's okay to say, you know, I need to like just get through doing work that I can maybe isn't how I would have liked to do it, but yeah. that I can live with. Absolutely. And and when I'm an independent investigator, I can do it my way. Yeah. And and I can tell you like when when we had our job search this year and we asked people to address open science in the or we invited them to address open science in their applications and we specifically said how you've done this in your past work or how you plan to incorporate it into your future work. And you know, as a search committee as a member of a search committee that was very interested in open science, we were also very aware that like people have had very different opportunities to do stuff so far. And and if somebody said like, you know, going forward, I plan to do X, Y, and Z. And it, it really read as sincere, which it almost always did. Then, then that was like, that was cool. That That's like, this person's part of the discussion. And, and I know the lab they're coming out of, and I know sort of how they, they've gotten some good things in their training, but maybe this isn't one of them. And, and that's true of everything. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always surprised and humbled when I realize I'm talking to somebody who's early career and I realize they're worried that I'm judging them because they like did these things either in the past or in the present, but it's like they're in an impossible situation. And I always like, I'm shocked that, oh yeah, I have to like reassure them that of course I don't judge them like it's not on them to change the world (laughs) they should not they don't have any obligation to be leading the charge it's totally understandable why somebody would do what they're told in those situations or what you know what there's pressure on them to do like it's editors often telling people to do these things like of of course it's not like I don't expect you to stand up to an editor and be like no I refuse to do this I will walk away from JPSV because I have my principles. That's if you are willing to do that, great. But if you don't do that, I absolutely won't judge you, especially if you're early career. I think for I mean, I'm looking you know, looking at the question that part B was like how to politely decline to do these things without seriously pissing off your advisor. That's an interesting one. I mean, one one idea is if you can find examples of people doing it the way you want to do it, like published examples, and you can say like here because nothing nothing sort of you know for somebody that that's kind of wanting to do these things because they want to get the thing published if you can show examples of like here's an example of someone who was successfully published doing it the way i want to do Mm -hmm. that's often just very sort of like pragmatic kind of like Mm -hmm. you know appealing appealing to their motivation which is like oh yeah here's this paper and and we could we could write it like this and this seemed to work for this paper and and it was well received yeah i think it's often Mm -hmm. easier to give a positive response than just say no so instead of saying no i won't do that say well how about this instead and even maybe write up a paragraph as an example of how to do it or something like that Mm -hmm. yeah 
Cool. Cool. Um, well, I, yeah, this is this is a tough one. I, I suspect, like Alexa, you said, you know, this has been sort of like this is a letter that's been kind of burning a hole in our pockets before. Mm-hmm. And I, I suspect this is a theme that might come up again in the future because it, it feels like there's a lot of variations on this out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cool. Well, why don't we move on to our uh, our main topic of the day? Um uh, so we thought it would be interesting to talk about our personal journeys with the replication crisis, um, uh, because I think the, especially I, I suspect based on the feedback we get that we have a lot of, uh, um, like grad student and early career people that listen to this podcast. Um, and, uh, you know, we've, we're, none of us are that early anymore, some less early than others and, you know, uh, uh, I think there, so there's a whole kind of, you know, now cohorts of, of students who've like, these issues have been in the conversation their entire, you know, grads since they started grad school. Um, but I think we've, we've all, we all started in varying places before kind of, this was a big topic of discussion in psychology and, and, you know, yeah. So we wanted to kind of discuss, uh, how we've each, uh, sort of, come through this journey thinking about, are we allowed to say crisis? Every, <laughs> there are some people that get really upset when you say uh-huh. replication crisis, but whatever, the conversation. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Samin, do you want to start? Like, how, how did you... Yeah. Yeah, what, what was your journey? So I have a terrible memory, so I have no idea, but I went through my email, <laughs> and it was really interesting to figure out what to search for in my email. So I searched for Simmons, because that was, like, the first paper for me that... And I, I tried searching for BEM, but apparently I mentioned BEM in a lot of emails that are not related to replicability. Um, and I searched for replicability and stuff like that. Anyway, so going through my email, so... So I, but the first thing I could find really that was directly related was on October 4th, Liz Tenney sent me the false positive psychology paper. So she was a postdoc at Berkeley in the same department where um, Blake Nelson is. And so she had an early draft of the false positive psychology paper. So she sent it to me on October 4th. I'll also note that an interesting historical fact, this was October 4th, 2011. I noticed in my email that I submitted my final tenure materials. Literally the subject of the email was final tenure materials on September 25th, 2011. So I submitted my final tenure materials and then literally nine days later, I got the false positive psychology paper. So I wrote to Liz and I said, interesting, I just skimmed it, but my reaction is that there's an obvious solution, require exact replications for all experiments. <laughs> and then I want to say, if people have time to publish 12 papers a year with three studies each, they have time to replicate their studies before publishing them. Um, and if that means that half as many papers get published each year, all the better. I agree it would be costly in terms of participants, but I think participants are getting cheaper and cheaper. And I also think it's about time we elevated our standards about sample size. Um, oh my God, I'm rolling my eyes so I know, hard it's right hilarious. now. <laughs> I feel like I feel um, like using the 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 phrase "exact replication" is like the the open science version of wearing bell bottoms. I know it's, it's really funny. Like... <laughs> There's so many details. Also, I wrote like things like blog entries and like your letter. Like I referred to one of Brent Roberts's blog posts as a letter. <laughs> like, it was hilarious. And then I so I also talk about how. Uh, it's all the more reason for people to hold themselves to a higher threat, higher standard than P less than 0.05, which like I actually took a while to come back around to. I now think we should lower our alpha level, but anyway, that's another issue. I said more generally, if I think if everyone knew they would have to replicate their findings, they would think harder and better about what studies they run, which like, I don't know. I think that's pretty cool. I, I don't know. It was weird. Like some of these things sound ridiculous to me now. And some of them I'm like, Oh yeah, that's a good point. Um, and then I ended that's with... That's more what I mean. Like, when I say I'm rolling my oh, eyes, I'm I just see. like, oh, that's so great that you, like, anticipated <laughs> all of this stuff at the beginning. No, but that's I forgot, I forgot it in, like. in the meantime. Don't worry. <laughs> and then I ended that October 4th email exchange with, um, it kind of puzzles me that people are willing to admit that this is a big problem, but aren't really willing to do anything that has any costs or slows them down at all. I just don't think there's a way to fix this and keep everyone as happy and productive as they've been until now. If you want quality to improve, it's going to take time or money or sweat or all of the above so I thought that was interesting so that was yeah October 2011 um and then I sent the Simmons et al paper to our I was running our brown bag at the time so we had a whole brown bag about it in November that was also when the reproducibility project was like starting up and people could sign up to be in it and I mentioned that to our brown bag so that was funny to see in my email in July 2012 was when I emailed uh, Chris Fraley he had written a blog post about how we need a consumer reports for journals 
And I emailed him and I was like, that is the best idea I've ever heard. We need to do this. <laughs> and that eventually two years later led to the NPAC Factor paper. Um, in 2012, I was also really lucky. I was colleagues with Roddy Rodiger, who was a great mentor to me. And he brought me into some discussions about replicability that APS was having. So I, I got to be part of a like task force that helped develop the new guidelines for the psych science submissions when Eric Ike was editor. So that was like part of my exposure. Actually, it was funny to read those emails. So Roddy invited me to that meeting and I said, well, apparently I was supposed to drive to Chicago to meet my dad, who I'm pretty sure lived in Europe at the time. But I was like, I will skip the Chicago thing and go to the replicability. I was like, I'm really passionate about this. I really want to come. I'm going to reschedule. Like, I'm not going to go see my dad in Chicago, which I lived in St. Louis at the time. So apparently that's how committed I was to it, which is kind of interesting to realize. In 2013, I, was, I got to be on an SPSP task force for replicability. And I also was about to go on sabbatical and noticed that a couple other people who were going to be at the same center that I was on sabbatical we're also working on replicability, so I got in touch with them, John Krosnick and Lee Jessam. Um, and so I was on sabbatical at Stanford in 2013-14, and Liz Tenney was still a postdoc at the Berkeley Business School, and she invited me to start coming to their journal clubs. And I think that's really what like made me buy in completely to replicability, and that journal club yeah, was a big turning point for me. So every Friday I would drive up from Palo Alto to Berkeley and go to the journal club that Don Moore and Leif Nelson and Clayton Critcher and others ran. Um, and that really just like everything just really, really sank in when I started spending time there. And I started my blog in March of 2014. And then the rest is like pretty well documented on the web, I think. But yeah, so that was that was pretty much my story. I had some really interesting emails back and forth with like Brent Roberts. <laughs> I emailed him in end of October 2011, told him that I thought the Simmons-Nelson Nadal paper didn't go far enough and was too focused <laughs> on experimental methods. And like us correlational people also have problems, but they were like ignoring the correlational study problems. And yeah, it was really fun to read back through those emails and see how like naively optimistic I was. Like, all we need to do is require exact replications in every paper. <laughs> like, that's it. Super easy. <laughs> well, so I go like ahead. what what were your experiences of having that? Uh, like, do you remember the encounters where that got dampened? Like, you know talking to people or reading things or whatever that kind of, uh, you're like, oh shit, there's like p resistance to these, you know, optimistic solutions or whatever. Uh, I, d I think that didn't happen until quite a few years later. I think hmm. I was still pretty optimistic through like 2014, 2015. I think it was only in the last year or two that I've been like, oh, this is hard and it's like political and it's personal and but I think for a number of years, I was like, it's simple. Like, what we just have to explain it to people, and then they'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you thought about the the stuff before that paper came out? Like, it sounds like you were pretty, like, ready for that paper. Yeah, I couldn't figure it out. So, like, in my emails to Liz Tenney on October 4th, 2011, I was like, yeah, you know, I've been thinking about this for a while. And I said that, like, sample size thing, like as if I'd been thinking about it for a while, but I searched for like sample size in my emails. I couldn't find anything <laughs> before 2011, before like late 2011. Um, also, yeah, I don't know. I can't also, I didn't remember how ridiculous the timing was. I literally turned in my tenure materials and then like all of this hit. I mean, so maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't have any evidence of my thinking of it before October 4th, 2011 really. Um, but it sound, my emails sound, oh, I do. I did find something in my emails from fe February, 2011, where Rich Lucas, who I didn't know very well at the time, had emailed a group of us about the Daryl Bem paper. And I wrote him back and I was like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And like, we were, a group of us were like, so that was February, 2011. So I had been thinking about at least the Daryl Bem stuff and the Stoppel stuff, I think at that time. And I remember I found you, an email where someone was like, I hear there's another social psychology fraud case about to break. Do you know what it is? And I was like, no, what is it? I don't know. Samin, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, mean, do you, do you know that when we met? Do I know when we met? Yeah. Do I mean, know? like, I know you know, like, when we met, but do you know, like, what the dates? Year? Was it 2011? Uh-huh. Oh. I knew it was an odd-numbered year because it was a CISP. But that's all yes, I knew. <laughs> it was a CISP. Um, I was looking at my emails because you, um, 
planted that idea in my mind. And I found the first email that I ever sent you. <laughs> um, and it was on August 2nd, 2011. Are you so, sure you want to read this out loud? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the email is not that interesting. I mean, I could read it. But the, the subject line of the email is canoeing. So yeah. this is basically me asking you out on a canoeing date. That's that was the first. <laughs> I time remember I that. We talked about the Bachelor. I remember that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean that that timing suggests that I probably you know planted these ideas in your mind. And you were, <laughs> you were like, the source to... of it all. Yeah, yeah I think. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, probably. So I I feel like we've talked about it before, but the um I mean talking about the sort of the lead up to all that, right? Like and we've talked about the BEM the the famous BEM chapter about how to write a mm-hmm. psychology article. Do you remember either in relation to that or other things having like inklings or unease or things like that? I have a terrible memory, but I'm pretty sure <laughs> I had zero unease about that chapter because I signed it I taught grad methods and I signed that chapter and then I have a bunch of emails from like trying to revamp my grad methods syllabus in like 2011, 2012. So, I, and I emailed Rich Lucas about like what papers to include and stuff like that. Um, so definitely by end of 2011, I was having unease about it, but I don't have any evidence that I was uneasy about it before other than my emails in 2011 sound like I was thinking about it before, but I can't find any. Yeah. I don't, I wish I had a better memory. I really don't remember. I also IP hacked a lot up until then, so like I can't have been that easy and un- that uneasy about it. Also, yeah, it was really yeah. funny because Liz Tenney and I, as we were emailing about the Simmons et al. paper, we were also writing a paper together, and that that were it's just fascinating to see like oh, but our paper is an exception because blah 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 blah. And I was like, <laughs> oh my god, yeah. this is so embarrassing. <laughs> So you, you didn't you didn't write to your tenure committee and say I take it all I know, back. Yeah, no, nope. uh... <laughs> didn't cross my mind. I mean, yeah, it's funny how like how easy it is to absolve yourself of um, past crimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Alexa, what what was your uh, what was your journey like? How you know to from where you started to where you are with sort of thinking about replication and open science? Well, so I feel like um, like the story that. Samin just told is kind of like a like a rebel hero narrative. Um, I and disagree. My, I don't know. I feel like mine is more of like a like a redemption narrative. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I think that like so. Um, I I went to grad school in a very like traditional social psych lab, and so um, to my former advisor's credit, I feel like um, Mickey has become. Um, like a real advocate of replicability and open science. Um, But, you know, before 2011, um, we were not aware of these issues. And I think that, you know, we sort of like p-hacked and and did all of the sins of social psychologists sort of just as much as anyone else. Um, So I think that my views have have changed quite a lot. So I think um, talking to personality psychologists i get a sense <laughs> that um you guys are pretty like smug about how you've been doing things right the whole time <laughs> and i mean i think there, there's some like degree of truth to that so i think i think that wait i have know, to my... say another thing in my timeline was an email between me and brent roberts about so i was the editor of the arp association for research personality newsletter and in 2011 brent roberts wrote a uh, an article for the newsletter saying personality psychology has a serious problem and he and I emailed about it back and forth so I have to say we do deserve some credit 2011 Brent Roberts said it (laughs) but anyway yeah that just confirms your self-righteous claim (laughs) yeah yeah um so yeah I was trying to like figure out um and find some evidence of sort of how I thought about these things before um 2011 because for me also the um, the Simmons, Nelson and Simonson paper was like very influential and it sort of was it to me that like sort of clicked like to the point where I tried to teach that the first time I taught a, um, social psychology, uh, undergraduate class and everybody in the class was like, wait, listening to that song makes you yeah. younger for real. My undergraduate had the same like, reaction. No. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out undergrads like, don't get it. <laughs> nope. Doesn't work. Um, but yeah, like I thought that this was like a, like this, yeah, was a huge deal to me. Um, 
but I think one of the reasons that I say it's a bit of a redemption narrative is because, so first of all, like Simeon said, I mean, I used to pee hack all the time. And I also think that like, there was some awareness of that. So I think that I have some evidence of like feeling dissonance about doing some of that stuff. Um, but also some of it was like very, um, uh, like I was very unaware. So I think one thing that has changed a lot for me is sort of like calibrating my expectations for what, what a real effect might be. So, you know, I, I think there was like a time when, when effects that we would sort of like scoff at now or think like there's no way that would replicate, I would have thought like, wow, this is like really cool. And this is like why it's fun to be in social psychology and our minds are so crazy. And like, you know, so like, I definitely remember really thinking that and planning studies based on those ideas and thinking like, it's going to be like crazy if we operationalize this this way. So like, I really like, I was like into all of that stuff for sure. Um, and, um, I have this, so this is really embarrassing and I'm like pretty hesitant to read this out loud and record it, but I'm going to anyway. So this is from May of 2011. And I sent, I sent this email, uh, to a friend of mine who's also a psychologist. And I said, um, I may like the storytelling aspect of science better than the search for truth aspect. Don't tell anyone. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? No, that's not so terrible. Like, it's just, that's how we all were to some extent. That's amazing that you like had the insight to like name it. Well, I don't know. I feel like, I, I don't know. I feel really bad about it. Um, <laughs> also, you were a grad student. I mean, I don't know. It's not like you were getting famous off of storytelling or something. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's true. Um, so, yeah, this was in May 2011. And then in October of 2011, you know, like I read the Simmons Nelson and Simonson paper and I could put. And I also remember there's another specific memory I have of talking to um, to a more senior friend, So somebody who was already a professor. Um, and he was saying that, like, he had a conversation with his grad student, basically telling his grad student to pee hack, although we like didn't have those words at the time. And he was like, yeah, I feel bad because his grad student is like really idealistic. And I feel bad telling him like, sorry, like this is the way that science works. Like you can't report all of your DVs. You have to report the one that works. Um, so I have a memory of, of that and thinking like, I know that like there's something wrong with this. Um, so I mean, like, I think that, one reason that I describe like these, the sort of way that I thought about these things, like in grad school and stuff like that is because, um, it's like, I think pretty easy for me to identify with people who, um, sort of haven't necessarily recalibrated their expectations for effects or, you know, um, don't know what the impact of P hacking is. Um, but then I think like, I think my views have changed quite a bit. Um, and I think the reasons for that are, um, not because like, I'm sort of like, not because of like any particular open-mindedness on my part, um, but because I started to become friends with people who wouldn't respect me if I continued to do <laughs> science in the same way. Um, and that's like a pretty powerful influence. And also, um, because, you know, I've, you know, over time I've become like more secure in my position. So I got a, a faculty position and it became easier to, you know, like, uh, be more self-righteous and, you know, I, I don't have tenure yet, but fingers crossed. And then that will make it even easier to be more self-righteous. But I think, <laughs> you know, like if you took out those factors, like if you took out, you know, having friends who would judge me for p-hacking and you took out, you know, the, the kind of security that comes with having a job or whatever, I'm not at all sure that, you know, um, I would be as convinced as I am. Like, I think I would probably engage in more self-deception and stuff like that. Um, or at least, I mean, what I see now as self-deception. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's, that's pretty much my story. I've, I was searching our emails for anything about replicability and I can't find anything, but we do have emails with the subject free will, but also emails with the subject, I'm so bored and hungry. <laughs> so obviously <laughs> we're talking about important things. Yeah. Uh. I, if, if I search for um, Samin, no, Vizier, I guess, in my email, I get 
1648. Wow. <laughs> you didn't you didn't go back and do a content analysis before the podcast. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> That's for another episode. Yeah. <laughs> we also have one called Oops. <laughs> I don't oh, know what yeah. that email is about, but that um, could be interesting. Anyway, yeah. That's I mean, I think it's really interesting to hear like your story as a grad student when this all hit versus ours as professors and Sandra so like we have kind of everything so I was just going up for tenure you were a grad student and then we're about to hear from Sanjay who I assume had tenure when this happened yeah I I had gotten tenure so so for me kind of the the watershed was a teeny bit earlier it sounds like you guys both it was the false positive psychology paper and and for me the kind of the watershed started with the BEM paper which was I think came out Officially was published around the same time, but was kind of in in circulation a little bit earlier. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I I have actually I remember I have a pretty specific memory of so I was on sabbatical at UT University of Texas in 2010-11, and I remember the the BEM paper was kind of like circulating um, or like an, an a preprint or something was was kind of circulating, and I remember going to lunch with a bunch of the faculty and we were kind of talking about this and various people had heard about it. Um, and then not long after that, uh, and, and it was kind of like the, the early conversation about that, that BEM ESP paper was sort of people saying like, well, what's people are trying to figure out like, what's the, what's the confound? Like what's the big thing that, you know, BEM didn't do that, that, you know, kind of got him this goofy result because it was like whatever 10 studies or however many it was. Right. And for me, uh, kind of a, a, a real sort of watershed was a blog post that Tal Yarconi wrote in which he made the argument that was this was the first time I'd seen this argument. And it's, it's very similar to what the, the false positive psychology paper, which came out a little bit later that year, made, which was he's like, hey, look, you know, there doesn't necessarily have to be one big thing. It could be all these little things and all these things that we kind of think are acceptable corner cutting. So, you know, and, and, and Tal went through and he, you know, in some cases could find sort of indications that, that were kind of consistent with this in other cases was sort of speculating, but saying like, Hey, look, there's all these things you can do. You can try an analysis within without covariates, or you can, you know, try a different DV or you can, you know, run a certain number of subjects and say it's two studies if you get it twice or combine them and say it's one study if, if that makes you get the effect or whatever. And, and, um, and I think for me, what what that did was it it crystallized a lot of the, you know, the sort of uh, like, I mean, you know, prior to that in, you know, in my training as a graduate student and then kind of earlier in my career, it was like, yeah, you would you would do stuff and, and you would maybe learned somewhere along the way that this wasn't like the textbook perfect way to do it, right? Like you would try an analysis a couple of different ways or with and without a covariate or something like that. And it, it's not like you were completely ignorant, but it's sort of the, I think the feeling was like these are sort of... Um, sort of small and acceptable things to try out. Um, and that, uh, um, you know, and I have to say, like, you know, I was taught a lot of, I think, good things alongside of that. Like the, you know, my, my mentors were very big on like checking things in multiple data sets and, and looking for sort of, uh, um, you know, multiple lines of evidence and that kind of thing. Um, and I think part of like, part of what might have helped personality psychology a little bit is that it's a field that put less emphasis on counterintuitive findings. So a lot of times if you found something that was sort of consistent with a past study, that was kind of okay. But uh, yeah, so, so, but I think Tal's blog post and then the false positive psychology paper demonstrated and false positive psychology paper very clearly and quantitatively demonstrated like if you take all these things that seem like little individual corner cutting and maybe one of them done once is, but you combine them, you two or three and, and it becomes this combinatoric explosion. And then all of a sudden you can throw stuff off, uh, massively. Right. And so that, that was a big sort of intellectual kind of leap for me. Um, and, and, you know, at the time, like, I think there's, there's this, sometimes, you know, there's this kind of narrative that gets 
put out there, which is certainly not true for me, but that like the the replication police have always wanted to tear people down and they're they're out to get people. And I've looked back at like my teaching notes to verify this. Like I was teaching John Barge stuff to my, you know, the the elderly walking study to my intro to psych students and standing up there and knocking down their objections and 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 teaching them as like this is received wisdom and this is a really solid study i was teaching ego depletion to my uh um uh, to my motivation and emotion students like i i was not somebody who was sitting there just like waiting for the chance to like tear down social psychology or anything like that it was um you know i think, I, 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 I think that's a dirty little secret about personality psych because that we're actually super jealous of social psych we're not like <laughs> They're waiting for their demise. I knew it. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know that I would say yeah. jealous, but I, I, I think I, I just, I, I have this like baseline assumption, which I still kind of do, which is that like I assume that in academia, people generally know what they're doing. So, so like whenever you know somebody posts some like goofy paper from some other field, and they're like, ah ha ha, look at how ridiculous these like whatever gender studies people are or whatever like my assumption is like this is a community of people who've been thinking about this really carefully and i'm going to assume that they know what they're doing and and uh, and if i don't understand it i'm going to at least like go into it with an open mind and think that they might and so it was you know it's not like i didn't know what statistical power was but I think there was a lot less conversation about how sort of underpowered studies affect things. And, and so you sort of look at the Barge study and it's got two studies in it and there, and he's done a whole bunch of other papers and you kind of like, uh, um, you're like, he's a, you know, he's a highly respected person. This looks like a, a careful study and, and I'm going to assume, and a lot of people cite it and I'm going to assume this is like part of a solid body of work. Um, and that, that was how I approached a lot of these issues. And, and I think I still go into a lot of things with that sort of presum- like charitable presumptions. I just, you know, I'm, I'm willing to overturn them. Uh, I mean, I think I always was. I think I have better sort of conceptual tools to, to overturn them. Um, but then, you know, also like my, I mean, I, I've had this blog for a while now and, and it's kind of become known as like a place where I talk about methods and reproducibility, but that's actually, I started the blog in 2009 <laughs> and it wasn't about that at all. And, and, uh, I, I went back and tried to find the first time I, I blogged about anything to do with replication. Um, and it was in, uh, um, May of 2011. So it was after the BEM paper came out. Um, and there was, a uh, um, uh, and this was also what kind of got me started thinking about like incentives in the publication system was that, you know, there was so Stuart Ritchie, Chris French and Richard Wiseman um, did a replication of the BEM paper, uh, the, the three studies from the BEM paper, and they submitted it to JPSB and JPSB rejected them. And this was really like a big influence on my realization that it's like institutions and systems and incentives. This isn't just like, I mean, I don't think I ever thought it was like Daryl Bem's a bad scientist or whatever, but this, this really sort of like shoved in my face, like this is an institutional problem. And so that I wrote a blog post about, uh, how like, um, Hey, a way, you know, I understand journals don't want to, you know, they think replications are boring. So they should have like an online supplement called JPSB replication reports. And this kind of this blog post in 2011, you know, I later blogged again about the subject and called it the pottery barn rule. And so this was the beginning of thinking about like, can we look for institutional kinds of solutions and incentive based solutions rather than just sort of, you know, telling people what they should be doing in their own labs. Because I, I, I think this really showed me like, oh, if people want to do it the right way, they want to run replications, like the world isn't set up for them to just do that and and be able to be successful at it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah so, so I, I mean, it's been obviously like a long time since then. It, it was interesting preparing for this and sort of, you know, thinking about like that, you know, that period. I mean, I think you know, that 2010, 2011 period was really sort of a, a big deal. It um, makes me wish I kept yeah. a diary. <laughs> like, I, I wish yeah. I knew what I was thinking. But yeah. that's really well, impressive just, that you wrote the Pottery Barn, the first Pottery Barn blog post in mid-2011. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it was, yeah, I don't know, I have, I have a lot of opinions about <laughs> that. <laughs> I, I wanted to see if I emailed you about it but I found an email from May 2011 where I said, hey, Sanjay, I can't figure out how to reply to your message on Facebook. Pathetic, I know. 
man. Well, you know, it's it's funny how like I mean, I do think that the tech the changes in technology and and for the kids today you know they don't really like I mean, things were just so different right so so social media around that time was just starting to be a thing yeah. it was just you know it, facebook was just starting to allow you to like reply to what other people said on mm-hmm. it or even post thoughts that you had mm-hmm. um and you know i do think that like you're kind of, you know, I mean, there were, I can think back and there, and this is part of why like a lot of this stuff gelled for me was like, I could look back and say like, oh yeah, I was p-hacking. I didn't quite get how bad it was or, oh, I, I did this thing that I didn't want to do, but because the editor said we had to do it and I just thought, well, you got to do what you got to do to get published. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have, I'm not going to name I'm not going to give specifics, but I do have specifics in mind. Like I remember very clearly with one paper like rewriting the paper because the editor told us to do it in a particular way that would like make it sexier favor a th- well well it would would it would favor the editor's theory wow. um and uh, i was just like okay i just want to get my paper published and the empirical findings are aren't going to change too much but we you know yeah what are you supposed so we, to do you know we just yeah, I was like, I was a postdoc at the time. I was like, I want a paper. And, you know, I'm still proud of the paper. The findings hold up. I don't, yeah. <laughs> the, the theory, who cares? <laughs> but, uh, I think yeah. it's interesting that the Simmons et al. paper, the false positive psychology, was such a big one. Because if I think back on it, like, actually, so credit where credit is due, the Uli Schemack Incredibility Index paper was a huge, mm-hmm. like, I, that one was, I think in my grad methods class, that was, we dwelt on that one a lot. And then the Peekerv paper. So those two, because the, the false positive psychology paper introduced the idea that it's possible to p-hack, but what P-curve and incredibility, incredibility Index did was show how you would detect it if people were p-hacking. And I think it was, maybe I'm getting this wrong, I'm not sure, but I think it was Farid Anvari on Twitter who said that like after reading those kinds of things, it was like the sixth sense, like I see dead people. Like After I read those things, I saw P's of 0.047, 0.048, 0.049, everywhere mm-hmm. and i was like oh my god they've been in front of us the whole time and now like i i just see them everywhere so i think that combination of like okay false positive psychology showed in principle what you could do and then peak urban and credibility index showed the literature could not possibly look like this unless people were p-hacking and that was like yeah. holy shit it's not just a hypothetical mm-hmm. yeah yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, people will sometimes say, like, oh, we've known about this stuff forever. Jacob Cohen and Paul Meal were talking about it. And to which I say, like, I'm, you know, I, I, I absolutely adore Paul Meal's writing and Jacob Cohen and all those other folks. But it's like there's been real cumulative advances. So it's like, yes, it's true that they were talking about this. And yes, it's true that, like, you, you know, they were, you know, Cohen was talking about power, but people have taken the idea of power and and sort of developed it in these ways that help us see things that that we couldn't previously see. So it's not like we knew all this stuff all along. It's we had the mathematical precursors and foundations. And also like the concern about power before was about type two error. And I think it was a false positive psychology paper that made it about type one error. It's like, wait, Mm -hmm. that's a bigger problem possibly than type two error. Yeah. And I think Ioannidis, uh, mm-hmm. am, I, am I saying his name right? Uh, Ioannidis, Ioannidis, I don't know. No uh, <laughs> that, that his, you know, why I most published John, findings are but... false. John, there you go. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, the why most published findings are false. Like, again, like he didn't invent positive predictive value or false discovery rates, but uh, sort of applied it in medicine and then people took that and and applied it in psychology and and you know the idea of like excess significance and that kind of thing mm-hmm. and and showing that power like you said affects type 1 errors when it is when it can intersect with publication right. bias yeah i feel like i left out also an important detail of my story which is which is uli shimak like because oh, um, you were so grad student in toronto yeah, i was a grad student in toronto and uli has been talking about power forever <laughs> forever <laughs> every time somebody would give a talk at our brown bag they would be like oh god Uli's gonna ask me about a power analysis and this was like way before anybody else talked about power um and it was just like really like he was just totally that was his mission was mm-hmm. to tell people about power so i think that's probably one reason so i also remember that we discussed the bem paper 
at a reading group and Uli was there um, and I think really understood the implications of this maybe a lot more than the rest of us did. Wait, I just had a memory. I think it was with you, Alexa. We were at APS and we were watching Jeff Cumming talk and I wrote you a note. I passed you a note saying like, I want to get t-shirts made that say one minus beta. Do you remember that? (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) That did happen. (laughs) Oh my God. It's kind of embarrassing. Kind of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I do think, you know, yeah, I don't want to undercut people, you know, people who were talking about these issues early. And I, I, you know, I think that that, that, that's been an interesting kind of social dynamic to all this is that there, I think there are people who, you know, have been talking about these issues for a long time and, and felt like they were doing things the hard way because they thought it was the right way. Um, and, and, you know, and I understand that like there are some people have some pretty strong feelings about that and, you know, you know, I don't want to go too deep into, to that. I, you know, I don't necessarily, yeah, I I think, I think I understand where some of the feelings come from. Um, I'll leave it at that. It's so complicated. Yeah. 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 that's probably a good note to end on (laughs) do we have a title for the episode too it's so complicated (laughs) yeah i feel like we told like the beginning of our replicability stories but like sometime in the future we should tell like what happened later and like how complicated it got because it was so simple at the beginning it was like yeah like it was like the light you know it was like enlightenment and yeah. Then it got oh, yeah, everybody so just has to. Oh, yeah, it's, it is funny to go, to think back on like the proposals, right? Like, oh, every graduate student should just run a replication for their like first year training, right. and yeah. and that'll solve everything. Yeah. And it's like, the, I mean, these were not bad ideas no. at the time. It's just like it's it's things have gotten a lot more complicated. Yeah, I had an email. I can't remember who it was with, but about like, oh, I think Don Moore was pushing me on open data, and I was like, I'm 95 percent in favor of open data, but here are like eight reasons why it won't work and it was like really fascinating to read yeah i don't know it's yeah it's an interesting evolution both within Mm -hmm. person and just across the field yeah yeah cool well cool this uh um this has been fun guys uh so i think are are we done are we good here yeah Yeah. i really need to pee so we better be (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, we're done. We're going to let Samin uh, take care of business. So thank you, everyone, who's been uh, listening. Uh, um, this has been The Black Goat. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes if you aren't already subscribed. And if you want to find us on the web, we are at www.theblackgoatpodcast.com. You can email us at letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. We're on Twitter at blackgoatpod. We're on Facebook, too. And thank you all for listening, and goodbye until next time.